most men who are attracted to children, what we see generally is that, that that's come about mainly because of their own experiences, you know, in childhood. A good percentage of those who have attractions to children have had such horrific experiences in childhood themselves. I'm Jason. And I'm Maddie. And this is Making Sense of Chaos. Dr. Russ Pratt, our guest for today, is one of Australia's most respected and experienced forensic psychologists, predominantly working with sex offenders and murderers. Russ starts by telling us a little bit about the work he does. Really, my my clinical interest has been working with young people who sexually harm. We used to call them juvenile sex offenders. Now they're sexually harmful uh, uh, young people, problem sexual behaviours. I also work with adult sex offenders. I work with uh, murderers, uh, child murderers as well. Um, sort of uh, if, if people are doing really bad things, I kind of like to be in there working with them. And Russ, you were telling us before we started that you used to have a whole range of jobs before you got into this work, um, tennis coaching, factory work. Did you ever picture yourself back then doing the work you do now? No, um, never really thought about it, never had any sense of it. Um, and I think uh so i don't know how you guys sort of found your way to where you are but i think that there has to be a sort of a a little bit of luck in it you know um it really has been my passion i don't think it's sustainable without it being a passion and people might say you know where's the passion with working with sex offenders you know where's the passion with working with people who hurt other people but you know i always say to those people that you know where we're, we're the, you know, on the, on the side of the good guys, you know, we're actually working with these people to make sure that they don't harm anyone else. And so there's a value in terms of prevention. And there's also, of course, a value in working with people who, you know, really, um, for whatever reason, have found themselves doing these terrible things and who often, you know, really don't get any opportunity to, um, uh, to feel that anyone wants to listen to them or assist them to manage this. So, um, you know, I've, I've found it incredibly, um, you know, satisfying and amazing sort of journey along the way. So on, on that note, in, ter- in terms of understanding what, what causes sexu- sexual abuse or, or the thoughts that, that come with it, what, what's, what's your sort of thoughts on all your learnings over the 25 years around what are the, you know, the psychological, social factors yeah. behind it? So first off, you know, they're, they're, it's really clear at this point in time that the, the you know, the underlying sort of um, basis for these behaviours in children and adolescents uh, seem to be very different than those for adults. Um, so, we, we, you know, we really have followed, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you guys are old enough to sort of have heard the, you know, the old saying that, you know, rape is not about sex, it's about power. Um, and so, you know, the idea that... Um, uh, power and control are very strong sort of theoretical underpinnings of of the the rationale for why men rape, for instance. So we have rapists, we have those who sexually abuse children, um, and certainly a feminist sort of uh, theoretical underpinning of power and control is a very helpful paradigm to work with adult sex offenders and particularly adult rapists. 
Um, but for young people who sexually harm, particularly children and early adolescents up to around sort of 14 or 15, and probably, you know, right through until sort of late adolescence, what we find is that most of these kids are engaging this behaviour to manage these really difficult internal states and particularly anxiety. You know, these kids seem to, you know, doing these behaviours to sort of, uh, they're either upregulating themselves because they struggle to feel anything um, or they're trying to downregulate. They're trying to sort of manage this kind of uh, really uh, high internal state or, or, or you know, really sort of um, uh, problematic sort of social um, confidence, uh, those types of background issues. But I do want to sort of reiterate if someone sort of came in halfway through that statement in a podcast uh, that, that, you know, they are very different theories for adults versus children and adolescents. And what we know, of course, is that when we treat young people, we really do, do use a sort of a, a trauma-centric model to treat young people. In other words, we, we see a lot of these kids that have suffered developmental trauma. So there is some sense of a correlation between those who have been traumatised in some way. Uh, and particularly, you know, family violence, for instance, in their background is a really high incidence of uh, family violence, either being a, a witness or a victim of family violence and then going on to sexually harm. Um, and so we, you know, we really are um, understanding that this is not so much about sex for them as well, but it's, it's not about power and control. It's about their own anxieties and their own sort of social failings. A um, little bit of a saying, you know, looking for love in all the wrong ways. Um, mm. And that's that's what we see over and over again with these young people. Mm. I can I can see you've got a question, Maddie. You, you're looking up in no, the sky. No, well, I was just thinking. Um, so that when you say so, there's that anxiety there and that the misdirected behaviour. Um, what's the link? How how does the how's the anxiety mitigated by these acts of um, mm. control or it's a, it's a good question. And in some ways, you know, um, we're not, we're not quite sure of sort of the, the, the how and the why, because we know that, you know, there's no causal factors. So for instance, we get very um, anxious young people and we get very socially inept young people and we get uh, young people who have experienced family violence and they don't go on to sexually harm anyone. They don't go on to sexually assault young people uh, in any of their, you know, their brothers or sisters or peers um, but what we see, you know, that in terms of, for instance, the, in the literature, there's about 136 background factors in, in the backgrounds of these young people who sexually harm. And the top four are, in no particular order, being exposed to or witness to family violence, having an experience of long-term low-level neglect or, or cumulative harm, being a victim yourself of sexual abuse and being exposed or a witness to sexual activity or viewing a lot of pornography. So you can see that there's two two kind of direct links. You know, the idea of being a victim yourself or looking at a lot of porn or, or walking in on your, your mum and dad, you know, having sex, et cetera, and becoming curious. But if you think about family violence or long-term low-level neglect, they don't really have anything to do with sex. And yet they are the, the top four factors in the background of these kids. So there's something about those unsettling, what we call them is kind of developmental trauma or developmental traumatic um, experiences um, that really do in some ways um, upset these young people so much that they're trying to self-soothe uh, and sexual contact seems to be a very powerful way to self-soothe. Mm. Um, so, so that's, that's, 
that's kind of, you know, how we sort of frame it up. Sorry, go on. So, Russ, in, in that sense, would you call it a coping mechanism, a very harmful coping mechanism? But Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's a good way of, of looking at it. We know that impulse control, again, you know, to, uh, the inability to also manage self-gratification. So in other words, we see kids with ADHD, uh, autism spectrum, learning difficulties, uh, intellectual disability are highly overrepresented in the sample of kids that engage in this behaviour. Not because of those, you know, problems per se, but likely because of the links between those issues and the inability to self-manage and delay gratification. Mm. and the impulse control you know i see it i want it i'll get it mm-hmm. and you know you link that to puberty to hormonal surges um etc you know you link it to pornography um and you start to have this sort of uh really problematic uh kind of background mix of factors um, and, and this is what we see mm. and i'm just uh, a question came up um, when you were discussing sort of your work, and this is sort of a bit of a backwards question, um, have you what's what's your sort of experience been like working with, say, um, Victoria Police or other services who um, you know their their main job is to to find evidence or to find um, a rationale to, to to why someone has committed it and committed a crime, a sex crime in, in, in this particular case? What's your relationship been with Victoria Police? Uh, it's very clear, you know, I've had a senior sergeant say to me, you know, um, uh, you know, we'll, you, we'll worry about locking up criminals and you go and look after your kids. Um, and so, you know, there are tensions in there as well. And I'm not sure that in some ways, Vic Pohl, if we're talking about kids who sexually harm, I'm not sure that they're particularly concerned about the background factors. Um, they're concerned about, you know, determining whether there's a criminal act. Certainly with adult sex offenders, there's been a huge amount of work done with sex crimes uh, by, um, you know, training them to um, basically uh, learn, I'm being careful how I say this, uh, but to be able to sit there and listen to, to, to adult sex offenders and be really interested in their story. Um, and it's called, um, I think it's called Whole, Whole Life Story or uh, Patrick Tidmarsh, Dr. Patrick Tidmarsh, developed this whole framework for Vic Pohl to be able to actually sit and, you know, show great interest in adult sex offenders' stories because um, what they found was that the, these guys wanted to tell them their stories. They, they were just busting to tell them their stories. Um, I was in the first group of um, people that were involved in training those detectives, and I'm, I'm, you can cut this story out if it's not suitable, but um, this, is, this is how much things have changed. I was a, um, already at that stage, I was a doctor of psychology and I was role-playing a sex offender. So they got people who worked with sex offenders to role-play them. And at one stage, the, uh, the uh, detective from sex crimes that was interviewing me in a role-play got so intense that I had to lean over and say to him, you know, this is only a role-play. You know I'm not really a sex offender because I thought he was going to belt me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, this is how things have changed over time. Um, so, again, maybe I'm sort of meandering through this story. I'm sorry if I am, but um, but there is a great relationship between uh, Vic Pohl and, and, you know, those who want to know what's happened and those who want to actually take action about it, I guess, is how we'd separate it out. Um, the other thing I would say, of course, is that Victoria is very lucky to have very good legislation for young people. It's called Therapeutic Treatment Order Legislation, which 
basically allows young people to, um, it's almost a diversionary scheme. So if you're under the age of 18 and you engage in sexually harmful behaviour or what would have been a sex crime or a sex offence in the past, um, the magistrate, uh, when you come up, um, uh, you know, to, to have your charges heard, uh, sends you off for treatment, for therapeutic treatment for 12 months. And if you are successful with that treatment, your charges will be stood aside for all time. And, and Russ, you're the one doing that treatment, right? I was, yeah. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about what that treatment involves. So you'd spend a fair bit of time particularising, understanding what had actually happened and determining what you think the basis of the behaviour is because, of course, you want to treat you know, the, what you believe is the underlying cause of the problem. Um, but most of the treatment, it's, it's kind of what we refer to uh, as a four-pillar model of treatment, of trauma treatment. Um, and effectively what we believe is that most of these young people who come in and it, and it is not a one size fits all, but, you know, we have to have a sort of a framework. So within this framework, of course, we're taking a very individualized approach, but we do have a framework around it. Uh, and the first sort of pillar of that framework is to, uh, try and assist a young person to really, uh, enrich their, not only their emotional awareness or their awareness of emotions within themselves, um, but also their awareness of what others are sort of putting out emotionally. If you think of the young guys you've known in your life, if I think of myself as a young guy, um, generally, you know, young women are far more emotionally sort of uh, have emotionally rich lives, I guess, than young men. And the guys that we tend to see coming into these programs, the guys who have sexually assaulted other young children in particular, tend to be a little, well, tend to have a few deficits in their emotional understanding, their emotional awareness, and also what's going on inside them as well. The old joke about men, you know, understanding, you know, mad, bad, glad, and sad really can apply to these kids, you know, without being sort of too rude to them. So we're really trying to, you know, open up that awareness of, you know, the full range of emotions. And we're trying to also get them to be able to read what's going on perhaps for someone else, because we want them to understand, of course, that, you know, that, that look on their, you know, on their uh, little brother or little sister's face wasn't one of delight. It was actually one of horror. Um, and believe it or not, you know, these kids do actually struggle with these emotions. So we sort of enrich this sort of emotional awareness and understanding. And we also, of course, do uh, what's called a, a offence specific uh, process work. In other words, uh, you know, if you're talking about sexual assault, then you're going to use all the words and you're going to actually tackle that sexual assault. The very first thing I ever say to young people when they come to treatment with me is I say, do you know why you're here? And generally what I get back is uh, because I've bullied someone, because I have an anger problem or my worker bought me, because my work has brought me here, or no, I don't understand. And I will always say, well, you're here, according to this, because you sexually assaulted your little brother on three occasions. But we're not going to talk about that today. But that gives me my mandate. In other words, that kid and I know exactly why they're here. And I know as soon as I say that, his anxiety is going to go right up you know, to about an eight or nine out of 10. And when I say we're not going to talk about it today, it's going to bring it back down to about a three or four. And believe me, he would hope we'd never talk about it, but we are going to talk about it. And so what I am doing in terms of doing this emotional work is assisting him to get some skills in managing that emotional sort of lability mm -hmm. so that when we start to talk about this difficult stuff, he can actually sit there and tolerate that. And then when I talk about the offence specific work, which is effectively 
so how did this come about? You know, what were your thoughts? What were your feelings? What do you imagine, you know, um, you know Jimmy was feeling when this was happening? Um, you know, how are you going to manage that? Um, let's do some exercises so you can actually manage that and tolerate not doing that. Um, those are the types of things we talk about in terms of offence-specific treatment. And remember, if we've got through those two parts of treatment, we're about six months in. You know, this is not um, particularly quick work. Uh, again, it can be quicker if we've got a really low-risk kid. But for moderate-risk kids, you know, we're going to be four to six months in. And then, of course, we're going to, to work with them to replace that unhealthy sort of sexual um, activity with healthy sexual practice and relational sexual practice. And, of course, the last part of this four-pillar model, we've done the, the emotional, you know, awareness and management, the sexual offence-specific treatment, the healthy sexuality. And then, of course, we have to sort of, it's almost like a finishing school. We're celebrating that success. We're assisting them to, um, you know, to basically move out and spread their wings a little bit wider in a safer way. Um, we've got either parents or caregivers or specific others to assist them with that and assist them to manage. Uh, and that's kind of how treatment looks. If only it was that easy. <laughs> so it's a lot of responsibility because I'm, I'm thinking you mentioned three percent. We're talking about young offenders in in this, in this example, but it, the three percent of reoffending um, is, is, is extremely low. But it's probably not something that the general population would be aware of. How do you sort of? Um, I suppose. What, what are your thoughts on that? The, the sort of overall general sort of perception of of. Um, sex offenders, I suppose, young sex offenders? Um, and how do you deal with the sort of responsibility that comes with, with treating them? Yeah, uh, look, it's, an, it's a great question. And it really is an interesting one, because on the one hand, yes, there's the, you know, if you listen to Talkback Radio, you know, there's always the, oh, you know, just build more prisons, once a sex offender, always a sex offender. And, and you know, I've had this bizarre conversation where, you know, someone's talked about a five-year-old you know, who is touching his sister um, and, you know, he's, he's just, you know, never going to get any different. He's a sex offender for life. And uh, we've had Herald Sun headlines, you know, boy for a sex fiend. And so there's this kind of bizarre world, you know, of, you know, these tiny little kids that are being sort of labelled this way. But of course, I can see why people are so um, hot about this topic. You know, it's a, it's a horrific crime. I mean, one thing I will say is that, you know, the, the, uh, the majority of sexual abuse in the community and sexual assault in the community occurs within the family. That's the first thing. And the number one group that engages in this behaviour is actually older male siblings, older brothers. It's not fathers, it's not stepfathers, it's not uncles, it's older brothers. Now, I crunch the stats. I'm really careful about this too because... It's not an epidemic, so about one in every two to 400 young people would engage in this behaviour. So it's certainly not an epidemic, and it certainly, I think, puts it into perspective. And in some ways, um, uh, Jason, that may kind of answer your question that we don't throw stats at people because they, you know, that, that's kind of disrespectful to this very emotive kind of um, issue. Um, but we also want to sort of make sure that people, um, first of all, it, that people feel hurt around their fears around, you know, the, the, the damage that sex offending can, can, uh, can cause, but also the idea that, you know, um, we know how, we know how to manage this. We've got a way forward. 
And of course, if we work with these young people, it's primary prevention. It has to be primary prevention because if they don't go on to harm anyone else, that's where the primary prevention is. So, um, you know, we're, we're going to say to, to anyone that sort of asks us there's, that there's real value in working with these young people and, of course, with adult sex offenders so that, you know, your kids are safer out there. That, that's, that's a no-brainer for me, you know. Mm. That's, that's, that's how we, we sort of... Um, and when I say we sell it, it's, it's not a snow job. I think that's, that's the truth. Um, mm. And to tell you the truth, I'd much rather put a million dollars a year into um, prevention and treatment than mm. housing one guy in a prison. You know, yeah, yeah. Whereas, but I will say this: of course, you know, there are some people that do need prison. There are some mm. people that need to be on a sex offender register. Mm. Every and there's one young person who you know doesn't respond well to treatment because that's what that three percent is. Mm. So you know, we're we're not silly about it. We understand. Mm. Ross, um, you mentioned uh, the emotional deficits and how you work through those in therapy. Um, and you mentioned that there is majority uh, male perpetrators rather than female. Where do degrading attitudes towards women come into that stat? And, and is that something that you would work through in um, a therapeutic space? Sure, absolutely. I, I've got a very good friend, Marie Crabb, who runs uh, Reality and Risk or Risk and Reality Project, which is probably one of the best pornography kind of um, programs for young people, I would say in, I'll say in the world, definitely in this country. Uh, very good. Uh, Marie not only educates, uh, you know, uh, adults and professionals around the impact of pornography on, uh, you know, relationships um, and young people's attitudes, particularly towards uh, young men's attitudes towards women. Um, but she also works directly with young people as well. And of course, you know, I've, I've done a lot of uh, work in the area of porn and bit of research as well with my colleague, Syra Fernandez as well, who, because we're really clear that, you know, that for instance, the impact of pornography is just demeaning to young women. Um, it just skews young men's views of what sex should look like and what relationships look like. And it tells young women what they should be doing to service young men. Uh, in terms of gay young men, it, you know, um, in some ways there's very little sex education for gay young men except for porn. And it puts them into very specific categories of sexual partners, tops or bottoms, for instance, um, I can't see anything. I mean, I'm a lib, you know, liberal guy. I don't care if, you know, if adults want to watch porn till the cows come home and that's knock yourselves out. But what I know about porn and young people, particularly early onset viewing is there's nothing good that comes out of pornography viewing for young people. Mm. It's just, uh, it's really problematic. And, and in terms of sex education, uh, it's just really problematic as well. But, you know? but what about those sort of um, real you know, patriarchal attitudes towards women's bodies. Um, yeah. You know, a, a young man having that in, almost entitlement um, to to have sex with a woman because she's a woman and he's a man. Um, you know, that's obviously and not not all men are like that. But but where does that sort of come in in terms of um, sexual offences? Where does that attitude come in we see a significant subset of young people young men of course 
who, you know, have all of the issues that you've just talked about. They're demeaning to young women. Uh, they, you know, they have entitlement to women's bodies and to expectations about not only, you know, um, in, you know, what they can and will do to and with young women, but how young women, you know, should act around them. So, you know, I think the word that comes up and I'm, you know, the, the demeaning of young women, but also the entitlement of young men, it's not a broad, it's not the, you know, the treatment, um, you know, paradigm because we've talked about the trauma attachment kind of brain developmental kind of um, four pillar model. But certainly we do see it in a subset of young men. And the reason I went straight to porn, of course, is because um, that is one of the drivers, I think, of these attitudes. But, you know, let's face it, you know, again, uh, one of the things that we're really clear about is, you you, you know, you really can't beat the impact of family as well. Mm. And if you come from, you know, a family where that's your, you know, your paradigm that you're living in, then that's what you're going to be, you know you're going to be sort of uh, spewing out as well. I mean, young men in, you know, in schoolyards, et cetera, we see these types of, of attitudes as well. Um, th- there's two real issues here, I guess. Um, one of them in terms of, so we've got the, the s- small subset of young, young men who these attitudes really do impact in terms of, you know, sexually assaulting other, mainly their peers, if that makes sense, you know, other young females. Um, not so much when they're sexually assaulting their younger brothers and sisters, which is around access opportunity and the, the idea of um, experience, if that makes sense over desire. Then you've got the, you know, the young men who are entitled, um, they demean young women and they may be the young men who are, who may be at risk of sexually assaulting, for instance, their school aged peers or young women, they meet at parties, etc. Um, what what are you know where where there's a, a larger issue with that um, is when we're actually working with broad cohorts of young men and young women in school situations where there's not so much of a risk of the sexual assault and the sexual offence behaviour, but just the impact on relationships and on the impact of, for instance, everyday sexual practices and what that might mean for what young women may want but not be able to get what young men expect and will tell young women that mm. they're going to get. Um, for instance, you know, the prevalence of young women providing oral sex to young men, which is now not seen so much as a sexual act by young women, but just something you do so you don't have sex with young men. And the high prevalence of anal sex, which in heterosexual couples, which is a direct you know, product of pornography, but again, you know, they're, they're kind of, uh, they take parallel paths a lot of the time rather than being the basis of the sexually abusive or sex offending acts of young men, if that makes sense as well. I guess it provides a nice foundation for that behaviour to occur. And if it's, you know, modelled by a father, that those kinds of attitudes towards women, and uh, yeah. it's quite pervasive, yeah. And then combined with the, the emotional deficit, all those other factors. Yes. Yeah. One of the things I do want to say, and we, you know, I started this work 25 years ago, as I said, mm. and when we started this work, we, the only model we had was we treated these young people um, like they were mini adults. We just expected they would go, grow up and become adult sex offenders. And that's what all the research told us. And so we used these incredibly punitive treatment models. And part of that treatment model was we would shame these young men and talk about the stuff that we're talking about now. 
And one of the things we found was it wasn't a particularly helpful treatment model because for most of them had no idea what we were talking about, number one, because it didn't fit why they were doing it. Uh, and number two, they soon learned to pick up on our, our rage and what we were telling them. And they would kind of pick up where they had to say, oh, yes, I won't do that anymore. Or no, I'm not going to treat young women like that. And I've been very fortunate. I've been, I've seen probably half a dozen of my former clients who have come back who are now in their probably thirties and forties, some of them even, um, and late twenties. They tend to come back when they've had children or they get married and God knows why they come back to, you know, to someone who treated them for this. But um, the early ones even, you know, then would say, um, we had no idea what you were talking about. You know, we would just agree with you to get out of treatment. Fortunately, Mm -hmm. Uh, we were made to look real good because let's face it, if only 3% of them are going to go on to do it anyway, it made bad treatment look good, made Mm. people that didn't know what they were talking about look pretty good as well. So, you know, go figure. (laughs) And Ross, I'm I'm interested in what what you mentioned before we started this podcast um, that that you um, have interacted with um, child murderers. Hmm. What's is there a, is there a link between the someone who perpetrates a sexual offence and uh, uh, you know is is convicted or is you know kills somebody hurt somebody um, in any way? There obviously there are. We do see you know the the really high profile you know child offender murderers. I've been I think fortunate not to work with that group. Um, most of the child murderers I've worked with have been very you know, very sad cases where because of, again, um, emotional deficits, empathy deficits, lack of tolerance, drug and alcohol, um, you know, a whole lot of these things have resulted in really very sad and quite awful deaths of children. Of course, you know, the what you've described does happen, you know. Um, fortunately, very we have very few of these sort of master sort of criminal, when I say master criminals, they're all very sad and awful kind of um, situations and and often, you know, maybe people when it gets to that. Um, But, you know, we, uh, our, our, our really awful, you know, child killers um, and rapists uh, are are quite rare. They're so rare. We name them, you know, we name them Mr. Stinky, Mr. Cruel, Mr. Baldy those types of things because they are very unusual in society, you know, far more prevalent of course are the men who kill their wives and children at home because Mm. they're drunk, angry, violent. Um, You know, you've got 150, 300, 400, 500 of them for every one of these, you know, these guys that sort of, you know, um, other, other, other abductors off the street kind of thing. Um, one of the things I will say, of course, is there is a great correlation between uh, men who are family, uh, uh, practice family violence and men who sexually assault their children. Mm. So if anyone's out there listening to this, uh, if you've got a, a client who's engaging in family violence against their partner, their female partner, have your radar up for sexual abuse of the children as well because mm. uh, it, it occurs at a much higher rate uh, for those guys who do practice family violence as well. Yeah, that was, that was, that was my next question. Um, yeah, the link between. Um, I'm I'm wondering what what your sort of view of of the actual act of um, of a sexual assault involves. So when so when so whether it's planned, whether it's not, it's something that someone does in the moment, whether it's an impulse thing. What's your sort of understanding of sort of how it actually occurs? 
Okay. So if I start off with the kids that we work with, Mm. Um, there were two pivotal sort of studies around this. One was by a young woman called, well, not so young now, Dr. Joanna Hatch, but she was young when she did her doctorate. She was, you know, um, just finishing off her doctoral studies and she wanted to, you know, her broad sort of interest was um, if, if a, an adolescent male was going to sexually assault someone, who might it be? And what she found that the most likely uh, person to be assaulted was their sibling, either male or female, whoever was there. So their brother or sister, followed by their cousins, or stepbrother and sister, followed by their cousins, followed by their close family friends, followed a long way down the track by strangers. And sort of what she concluded was that access and opportunity were, were everything. It wasn't about desire. It wasn't about planning. It was just the idea that the, the young person who was engaging in the behaviour wanted the experience of, of you know, sexually assaulting someone they weren't desiring that particular child. They weren't saying, I you know, I want to sexually assault a male child age between, or I'm, I want to sexually assault a female. It was like, okay, um, I have access to you. You're here. So you're it. Um, we know that of course, a small number of adolescents do, you know, tend to choose, you know, someone based on their desire rather than access, but overwhelmingly it's about access and opportunity. Um, if you go towards adults, again, um, adults who sexually assault children, uh, you know, we have this broad spectrum, but again, the majority engage for access and opportunity, men who have access to your children, non-pedophilic men who have access to their children. Then of course we have pedophilic men who are very specific about number one, their primary attraction is to children. Some of them will be specific, uh, pedophiles as well in terms of specifically female specifically male child, specific age, specific look. Uh, so again, we can't quite generalise, but we do know that majority of sexual abuse, again, is around that access and opportunity. Small percentage of pet, more pedophilic, more um, specific choosing of that victim as well. Does that kind of answer the mm. question? Yeah. No, no yeah, it, it does. Um, and, and with, with the, the pedophilic thoughts that you mentioned, are they, are they are they sort of organic thoughts that occur? I know you've mentioned a lot of the sort of determinants that lead down the path of sexual um, abuse in general. But in terms of the, the pedophilia specifically, are these things that are preventable or, or changeable at, at any stage? There's probably about three in every 1,000 men in the population uh, that are, would identify as pedophilic or pedophiles. Um, but we know that only about half of that number actively sexually assault children, either because the other one and a half in that sort of thousand don't want to get caught and arrested, or their morals say that even though this is my primary attraction, I don't want to sexually assault children. Yeah. It's interesting. There's a, a, a researcher in the, I think in Canada, Dr. James Cantor, who's done a lot of research in this area. And basically he says that, uh, um, um, men are basically born with pedophilia and there's correlations between um, low IQ, left-handedness and lower than average height. Go figure. So watch out for those left-handed short, dumb people. Is the, <laughs> no, no. It's interesting, you know, that uh, I've been at a, a conference where uh, Dr. Cantor has talked about this and he plays a nasty trick. He asks people to hold, you know, put up their hand and if their left hand's up, he asks them to keep it up and then gives them this slide with this research. And if you want to see a group of angry left-handed people, 
that's the group you're going to see. So, but he does say that the research is pretty much home, home and hosed. And that doesn't mean, of course, that left-handed short, less than smart people are going to be pedophilic, but there are correlations. What I think it says and what he basically said is that these are all away from the norm. In other words, lower than average IQ, lower than average height. Left-handedness is, is actually um, apparently um, not the norm. Something happens um, between conception and birth that something goes wrong. Mm. Yeah. Again, yeah, because it's not like an evolutionary beneficial behaviour, like, you know. Not at all. But it, it was groundbreaking research, of course, because, of, you know, most, most men who um, actually uh, are attracted to children, what we see generally is that, that that's come about mainly because of their own experiences, you know, in childhood. And when I say most men, a good percentage of those who have attractions to children have had such horrific experiences in Traumatic. childhood themselves. Yes. So traumatic right. reenact, reenactment, for instance. Right. But Cantor is basically saying, look, pure pedophilia, this is it. Um, which, again, you know, um, really does upset a lot of people, of course. Yeah, that's super interesting. I mean, it made me think before, even these sort of, the production of a lot of these sort of dating apps and a lot of the sort of access to um uh, to, to sex and to and and to, and to sort of connection. I mean, it, these. Uh, do you, do you find any relationship between the sort of uh, the quickness or the efficiency of of meeting someone, connecting with somebody, and the the sort of se- sexual assault world? Oh, that's a really interesting question. That. Um... I mean, I'm tempted to say yes. And again, if we look at impulsivity and the ability, you know, it's pretty clear that a number of these websites are specifically for very fast, um, purely sexual hookups. Yes, we'd accept that. Um, And so one would think that the processes might actually parallel um, in terms of the, the, um, the, um, privileging in some ways of not having to actually manage your, you know, your impulses. Oh, there's someone online. I'm going to hook up with them right now and I can do the same in, you know, two hours and I can do the same tomorrow and I can do the same again. And, you know, the idea of not being able to manage and, and sexually assaulting someone. So the, the internal processes, there might actually be some um, parallels there. But again, it raises the question, um, why do so many people then not you know, go on to sexually assault? others in other words most people manage this stuff reasonably well i think i think we'd, we'd agree with that but whilst the rates of sexual assault are obviously too high in the community most men don't sexually assault women most you know that, that's that's a given um not sure whether i'm answering the question correctly but but yeah it made me think of it um only because when you mentioned sort of access and opportunity it sort of the affairs moved more towards sort of online and that and that that's not people still are still making choices in in some respect but it is the, the way the way forward it's 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 the way current especially in in victoria with 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 the lockdown it's that the way to to fantasize and to interconnect and it is a bit of access and opportunity even from a visual sense you know the the the, yeah. the access to sort of just yes. impulsively well, yeah. I mean, one thing that you have raised, uh, which I think is a really important thing to, to come back to, you know how I said that, you know, with the kids, we're not so much into, you know, feminist theories of power and control and, you know, that's, um, you know, sex with that group, it, it's a little bit more uh, around developmental issues. 
On the other hand, we can highlight in some ways, given that, let's face it, most people could go onto one of these websites and manage to engage in uh, with someone sexually fairly easily. Why then is there still a cohort of you know men who do want to sexually assault women, given it's available over here for consenting couples? So one would suggest, or that might suggest that power, control, the excitement of the, you know, the hurting of someone for adult men who engage in this behaviour are very much a feature of this sexual assault. Mm. Does, does that kind mm. of bring it into mm. sort of contrast mm. here? Yeah. Mm. So that, that's where, you know, this theory that, you know, feminist theory is very helpful mm. for these, these adult men. Very helpful indeed, because it's so readily available everywhere. Why, why would anyone need to do this? So it can't just be about sex, can exactly. it? Exactly. That's mm. the missing elements. Yeah. Mm. 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 And Ross, with, with the treatment, just for, we, we have a few sort of clinicians listening. What's the, the specific sort of treatment? What, 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 what is the different schema therapy, schema therapy modalities of CBT? What, what's the sort of core of it? Look, um, it's a, it's a very, so where will I start? Most men who enter treatment for sex offender uh, issues in this state do so through a, you know, a corrections Victoria or a state mandated program. Yeah, that's your gateway. So effectively, if if you are convicted uh, of a sexual offence in this state, uh, you then become uh, a candidate for treatment uh, and you must uh, be assessed at a certain level of risk to actually enter this treatment program or these treatment programs. Most of the treatment is provided in group settings. Most of it, again, and for you clinicians out there, um, you guys have the expertise. I'm really aware of that, not me, in terms of what you're running. Uh, And I acknowledge your expertise. You do a great job. Um, And some of you and I have talked about it at length. So, um, you know, that's a given. But generally, you know, CBT, generally group programs, um, you know, effectively uh, running through a modulized treatment program covering off on a number of areas for example uh, cognitive distortions for instance Um, you know impulse control um, self-management you know views and attitudes etc etc so these are you know very much a manualized approach um, um, because what we're looking at here I don't know whether it's fortunately or unfortunately but the majority of these guys who engage in this behavior um, you know, fit certain kind of profiles. Does it, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that they can all be profiled, but it's amazing how many of them sort of fit particular sort of patterns of behaviour. In some ways, that's helpful because, of course, then we can treat these guys quite successfully in these broad treatment programs. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, imagine a world where every sex offender looked totally different to the next one, and you couldn't work out what was going on. It would mm. just be untenable. Um, and so this is what, you know, what's happening in, for instance, in Corrections Victoria, you know, they're running them through these, these programs. Right, right. And, and have you, Russ, have you f- found or do you know of a link between things like um, sort of uh, yeah, going into the DSM here a little bit, but more sort of oppositional defiant disorder, conduct disorders and antisocial disorders and, and sexual abuse? So, for instance, you know, when we're, when we're um, assessing men who um, are, you know, long-term sex offenders, um, um, we're always looking, for instance, for psychopathy, you know, the old, uh, you know, as the guy psychopath. So we, we generally, you know, I'm looking on my floor, I've got all my, my, uh, 
my uh, assessment tools down there, including the, you know, the hair, the PCLR, the psychopathy checklist, um, because it's one of the obvious things that we're going to be looking for in these guys. In other words, you know, does this guy do what he does or is he able to do what he does because mm. he's just a psychopath? Um, of course, conduct disorder or, or antisocial personality disorder, more, more you know, rightly saying, is going to play into it because, of course, in some ways, these are behavioural diagnoses, you know. Um, you, you, for instance, as a kid, you get a conduct disorder because of the things you do rather than because of the way you think. Um, you know, antisocial personality disorder you get because of the things, again, that people have sort of tallied up of what you've done. Um, to, you know, come to this, you know, this guy's doing some really antisocial stuff. Does he meet the criteria for antisocial personality disorder? And, of course, we do see these, um, these, see these diagnoses or we, uh, these diagnoses are probably um, or definitely sort of um, applied at a greater rate in our uh, clientele group than perhaps many others, yeah, mm. just because of the nature of what these guys do. Um, you know, for example, when I'm looking at, uh, for instance, when I'm assessing sex offenders in terms of their risks around children, I'm not only looking at sexual acts. I, I would always, when I was in child protection, I would always ask my practitioners, does this guy um, have any um, charges for driving an unregistered car, driving without a licence, um, you know, traffic fines, parking fines, multiple parking fines? Why? Because... Um, what you're looking for is a guy that says, I don't live by your rules. Screw you. I can do whatever I want. Mm. And mm. by the way, I'll sexually assault children as well. I'll do what I want. Mm. You know, that idea of the antisocial, um, yeah, the maverick, the person who believes that they're above the law and things like unlicensed driving, things like parking wherever you want uh, are really, you know, good signs of this over and over again. Mm. Um, as an example of this, I assessed a guy recently sixty thousand dollars worth of parking fines. Mm. Mm. Um, what well, you know, and I asked him. Uh, so tell me about that. Uh, he'd originally, many years ago, when they'd first come up, said that uh, you know friends had borrowed his car and done all these terrible things. He just said, oh, "I couldn't be bothered to park wherever I want." That's mm. what you get. Because mm. I'm wondering whether um, that's where sort of the general sort of um, opinion comes from when you hear of a sex offender. It's it's that it's more to do with people's fear that that person is isn't experiencing anything and 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 they've got no ability to regulate and understand or you know the pain that they've caused. Um, because if you're if you're going down the path of sort of you know it's, it's very much a police um, you know you look at someone and then you find you know all these contributing factors um, from their previous history that, that that you can link to to satisfy a brief or whatever it is. Um, I'm I'm wondering whether that's got something to do with it. Whether whether we we view everybody sex offenders in 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 that light that you know they're emotionless. Um, and they're out to hurt and, and the moral morality doesn't, there's no morality that there's no ability to understand what's right and wrong. Um, so I, I'm wondering where, where, where's the sort of crossover between sort of that view and the actual, um, the actual psychology of somebody who does have choice or does appear to have choice when offending a sex crime. Mm. I think, you know, when we talk about the, the guys who are, you know, the guys without morality, the guys who, you know, do have the traffic fines, the, the, the other, which I think you're talking about versus, you know, the greater good sort of uh, idea. You know, my sense is that the, you know, the, 
the guy that, you know, is the psychopath, the guy that has no morals, the guy that doesn't feel anything is very much in the minority mm. in terms of what we're looking at, very much in the minority. Most of these guys are just sad guys that, you know, for whatever reason, find themselves in a position where they have the opportunity, they have the access, they're sad, they're lonely, they might have drunk a bit too much, smoked a bit too much, and they find they've sexually assaulted a child. They're incredibly ashamed of it. They're incredibly remorseful, but they might also be a little bit excited by it. Who knows? Mm. Um, But they're not certainly, um, you know, saying, well, you know, you know, I don't feel anything. I'm going to do that again. I've planned this for ages. You know, it it really is the, I think it does them, it, it paints them too much as a, as a Hollywood predator, you know, a, mm. this, you know, the super predator. And as a guy, you know, so these guys are pretty sad. They're, you know, they're just, they're, they're certainly not master crims. I'll tell you that, you know, which, you know, again, um, you may have run across in your profession, <laughs> Um, you know, or both of you even would, would, I think, understand what you've, you've, you know, working in as well. Mm. That's right. Yeah. I've just noticed the time, Russ, um, the classic hour podcast, the 10 to an hour and a half podcast. Um, Daylight saving, don't worry about it. Yeah, <laughs> saving, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Five minutes. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Um, so I, I just wanted to sort of um, end this on, any questions that you have or anything that you feel um, can be added to our conversation um, tonight? Is there anything that you want to sort of put forward or sort of last, last standing comments? Look, my, my comments would be, I'm really glad that you guys are bringing this out and uh, that there is a population. I think from the sound of what you told me that the population is generally people that are working in our allied fields. And so I'm really grateful for the opportunity to talk about it. Mm. I hope it kind of makes sense. I want to acknowledge, you know, people that are working in all our fields, um, you know, with, with the people that we're talking about, because, um, you know, I think there's a lot to be done and I think we, we need to sort of hang together in tough times. You know, I, I've always found, you know, that the, the, the strongest sort of um, asset that I ever had was the people that I was working with, you know, mm. Uh, and the ideas that they gave me and what, what I was always and still am thankful for is how generous people are with their expertise, their time and their practice. I've very rarely met anyone that says, I'm not going to tell you that because it took me ages to learn. You know, people are incredibly generous with this stuff. So I just really appreciate the, you know, the opportunity and uh, acknowledge the expertise out there and hope I haven't banged on too long. It's rubbish. <laughs> no, no, I don't. <laughs> It's been, uh, I think a lot of our clinicians, people that do listen um, through our employments and are going to be probably sitting back and just, you know, won't be able to sort of uh, stop the podcast because I think, and, 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 I, and I say that I can just imagine I've got a few in mind that, you know, won't be able to. Same. Of, yeah. I, I think, yeah, I think it's been an amazing um, conversation, Russ. And yeah, we probably only went to the tip of the iceberg. But um, yeah, thank you so much for coming on and um, yeah, really, really appreciate it. Pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for running it. I really do appreciate it. That was Making Sense of Chaos. A podcast about death, dying, love, grief and hope. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Thank you.